Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Matthew Narciso. He is the Managing Director of Superstaff. It is a fascinating conversation, actually. I had a really good conversation with Matthew. We first cover onshore versus offshore. He does both of them. Uh, And he also does a lot of enterprise, and he also does a lot of smaller companies, startups, Main Street companies, and also, you know, series ABC companies. So a really interesting perspective from Matthew about all types of outsourcing. Uh, and of course, we reflect on the history of outsourcing and how it's evolved and also how COVID and the move towards remote work has impacted outsourcing and offshoring. So a really good conversation, uh, really thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a lot myself. As always, if you want the show notes or any of the links or anything we mentioned, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish Inside Outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Matthew from Superstaff, how are you? Matthew, um, you have both onshore and offshore staffing solutions. I want to first unpick that a little bit and see what you think about the two and with a bit of comparing and contrasting. But first, Matthew, maybe we can uh, hear a little bit about you, hear a little about Superstaff and... Uh, we can go from there. Sure, I'd be happy to. And I, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to, to have me on here today. Um, so as you said, my, you know, my name is Matt. I'm the, the managing director here at Superstaff. Um, and, you know, Superstaff is a human capital, uh, you know, leasing firm. Uh, fancier way to say that, I guess, is, uh, you know, we're a BPO. And uh, we've been in business for about 13 years, heading toward our 13th year, I believe, this December. Uh, out of the Philippines. Um, but yeah, we've also got uh, got some good stuff going on in the United States, um, moving down to Latin America as well. And, and uh, But the Philippines always has been and continues to be kind of our uh, our base of operations. 
Got it. Got it. Super exciting. And so you have a you have a site in the US, and then you have the Philippines, and as you said, you're expanding to Central America, uh, nearshoring. Then obviously, how would you compare onshore versus offshore? How how do you sort of as a sort of rough, I suppose, ten thousand foot view? How would you summarize the pros and cons of onshore versus offshore facilities? Sure. Yeah, that I mean, that's a discussion that is uh, not to be cliche, but is rapidly evolving as, as we try to tackle this, uh, you know, this kind of talent shortage together across the West. Um, if you would have asked me that question 30 months ago, it would have been, you know, a slightly modified, uh, modified answer. But the reason for onshore versus offshore is folks onshore often need you know, that they need to be on shore for either legal reasons or regulatory reasons or logistical reasons, right? There's, there's an actual need to be uh, located closely, whether that's because you have uh, perimeter security concerns or if there is um, some sort of regulatory requirement that, 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 that um, obligates you to have a, a local staff, not just local in terms of the United States, but local in terms of maybe your state or your city or whatnot. Um, there are still really, really great reasons to have an onshore provider um, being everything that I just named, right? If there's regulatory requirements, if there's things of that variety that require you to be onshore, you can still benefit um, from outsourcing to specialty providers. So you can tap into specialized talent pools, for example. A great example would be if you're a, um, you know, if you're a, if you're a, Series B, Series C type of startup out of Oklahoma City or Tulsa or something of that variety, and you know perhaps that local talent pool may not be conducive to scale for particular technical positions just yet. Right now, we know that the Midwest and we know the South and we know a lot of the Rust Belt areas like that are are opening up a lot of um, tech regions as of lately. But the truth is, if you want to scale very quickly, I think the closest city. Um, to Tulsa that can scale you in technical positions is probably Austin, right? And so that's kind of what onshoring is about, is allowing for specialized talent pools if you have a reason um, that's requiring you or obligating you to be in the United States for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, uh, we've got, got an office in Pennsylvania. We have operations there as well as in uh, New Jersey, Texas. We have teams in Louisiana and North Carolina and and uh, they're doing quite well. Um, that's actually our fastest growing uh, entity. Um, so, you know, a lot of great reasons to be there, definitely. Uh, but when you compare that to offshore, of course, that's got its own, you know, own slew of benefits as well. Got it. Got it. And the everyone's talking about the labor shortage at the moment, um, the yeah. great resignation. Sure. And, you know, I'm not sure if it's sort of the high end skill jobs or the low end sort of you know, kind of um, higher repetition jobs or all of them. How are you seeing on the ground there? And, and uh, is, is, is that then an opportunity for you or, or are you just as hamstrung by that issue as well? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, you know, talent acquisition. They, every year we see these memes on LinkedIn about, you know, there's a talent war, right? But man, this year it turned into an absolute knife fight. Uh, starting around around November, right around November when uh, restrictions started to ease across states, uh, specifically kind of high uh, economic impact states like California, New York, and Florida, and Texas, and areas like that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it is difficult really to fill any positions. Um, it, a lot of people keep pointing at the service industry. Um, but the reason why it's so obvious in the service industry is because a lot of their business models kind of cap them at certain pays, right? So I was taking a bus from a client in Austin um, up to a client in Tulsa. I, you know, I saw that the plane ride was essentially going to have a 10 hour layover. So I said, hey, I'll take the bus. And so I took a, I don't remember how long it was, four hours or six hours or something. I took a bus up the highway um, across those states. And I saw a McDonald's in the middle of Tulsa off the side of some, in, some, some local native reservation. And there was a McDonald's in the middle of this field, basically. And it was advertising $20 an hour, right? And so some folks can do that. And, you know, God bless them if they can, if they can compete in this, uh, this, uh, this wage surge. But a lot of service industries just cannot, right? They have a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of costs that just don't allow them to compete there. And so the talent shortage is more obvious at the service level because they do have a cap on how high they can go, right? If they turn around and try to, you know, sling a burger to me for forty dollars, it's 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 a non-starter, right? Got Whereas it. for yeah. more highly technical positions, you take a Google, you take a Facebook. Um, you know, these 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 guys are recruiting, you know, deep into the six-figure security engineer positions. Um, they can just keep escalating, right? Uh, and, and we've seen that not just recently, but even going dialing back the last decade. It, you know, uh, if you look at the Seattle market, for example, some of those security engineer positions start out north of three or four hundred thousand dollars, and so it just keeps escalating. So there's a few different reasons uh, why there's a shortage. One of them being wage, wage escalations at the top, and the other ones being wage gaps or sorry, wage stops at the bottom. But in either event, it's affecting all industries, uh, you know, whether they're, you know, whether, whether it's kind of near the entry level or they're at the senior level, it's, it's, it's a knife fight regardless. Um, but the reason why you would still look at onshore is a potential solution is, again, if you're, um, you know, if you're heavy in financial services or you're heavy in biopharma or you're heavy in some of these more heavily regulated industries that require, um, you know, uh, more localized uh, security measures, then it's still going to be the best place to be. You can still be in the U.S. You can still be on that soil, but maybe you can tap another state, right? So maybe you're out of Silicon Valley and you're leveraging the economics of Tulsa. That mm. might be a fantastic solution. And we've seen a lot of our clients do that, right? Or you might be in New Jersey or New York City and you might want to leverage, uh, you might want to leverage some of that great talent down there in Omaha, right? So um, it's a similar concept to offshoring, um, more localized, uh, but yeah. And some of offshoring is about staff augmentation as, you know, they're just kind of treated like normal staff, but they're really kind of playing off the availability of talent and then also the, the cheaper salary environment. In the US, it's obviously the, the arbitrage is not that great. So it's more of a, it's more of a solution typically. Is that right? Like the... Um, yeah. businesses are coming to you for a, a, a solution as opposed to necessarily the staff. Uh, and so does that mean then that super staff primarily is, you know, uh, customer service and um, um, content moderation and, and those sort of solutions? Yeah, I mean, those are certainly big pieces of our portfolio as it relates to some of our outsourcing divisions. I mean, we have four outsourcing divisions and everything you name definitely is a, a significant no significant part of it, but I mean, there's, there's three, I mean, I've read, you know, a ton of articles where people state the different reasons for outsourcing, but 
fundamentally, at least from my anecdotal perspective, is that there's three primary reasons for outsourcing, right? There's, um, there's the old 1980s uh, reason why IBM went to India, right? And that's to kind of find a, a balance, right? They want to find a dollar cost average. You know, you have your set cost out of Seattle and San Francisco, then you have your mm-hmm. cost in, in, uh, in Hyderabad or, or Mumbai, and, and that brings your average cost to the middle of those two, which is a more conducive place to do business, right? So um, that's the primary reason that, you know, going back, you know, decades and decades. Um, one of the more recent uh, developments is that instead of just Wall Street outsourcing, Main Street is now outsourcing. And that's the secondary reason, which is um, the talent struggle, right? Uh, reduced attrition, uh, reduced turnaround time. So, for example, what we're seeing out of Clark, we have an outsourcing center in Clark, and we're seeing... 11 day turnaround times on hires there compared to 42 days average for the same position across the Eastern seaboard. Right. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing attrition and I'm sure you've spoken to enough outsourcing executives to, to, to hear, you know, 1.4 to 2.5% attrition a month is, is, is quite, you know, that's very attainable uh, here in the Philippines. Uh, Whereas Mm -hmm. for similar positions there in the U S right now, that's sitting at 60, 70% annually. Right. So that's the second reason why people outsource is just to kind of uh, create a talent acquisition pressure valve. And then the third, uh, and this is also kind of one of the older reasons to outsource, is access to specialized talent pools. Now, for that reason, cost is less of a factor. So you take Boeing's, for example. They outsource to Japan for the 787 Dreamliner, right? They do their engines out of Germany, I believe. Uh, those are not cheap markets. Nobody's under any illusion that Boeing is outsourcing to Japan or Germany uh, to save money. That's not at all what they're doing. And if they wanted to do it that way, they could certainly pick cheaper destinations. They're picking it because, uh, you know, Germany and Japan happen to have some of the very best engineers in the world, right? Um, and so that's the third reason, right? Access to specialized talent pools. And kind of the vision for Superstaff overall and the reason we're onshore, offshore, nearshore is to be kind of a comprehensive uh, human capital solution. So some of our clients will call and say, hey, you know, we need we need 75 financial analysts. Uh, we need to get the cost here. Okay, well, that might be in Clark, right? Whereas they might say, okay, we need a data scientist uh, with these particular certifications from this range of education. Okay, well, then we probably should put those in Texas instead, right? Um, and so the idea is, um, whatever human capital concerns you have or needs you have, whatever's holding your business back, you can leverage any of the reasons to outsource or mm. perhaps even all three reasons. So, yeah. Yeah. And you, you leverage then the, the advantages of different locations, different availabilities across the globe, right. then, don't you? And, and what I think significantly, you, know, you mentioned the example of IBM maybe 30, 35 years ago. I, I think at the beginning, the, the significant difference is you actually had to make a real point of going offshore and to expand your market from a local finite market to a global international market was a real big strategic oh, yeah. sort of commitment and a mission. Whereas today you almost have, it's almost becoming default and you almost have to take a strategic decision to hire locally and, Correct. and kind of suffer those consequences. So I think in 30 years, it's actually changing now that the, you know, just the availability of or access to international talent and the normalization of international talent is, is it, the, 
difference is profound, isn't it? And part of that is also the technology that enables that. Um, but, you know, I, I just sort of, if you fast forward 10, 20 years, I, it's, it's going to be the default, isn't it? As opposed to kind of a kooky yeah. outlier um, of 30, 30 so. years ago. I would assume so. And I would hope that, you know, not just companies, but also, uh, you know, governments and, and, you know, everybody that's kind of involved in that uh, business ecosystem uh, continues to see that, right? Uh, continues to see um, where this is going and where this is going naturally, because we're, we're going to find a really good uh, middle ground if we continue to kind of evolve in this direction of leveraging global workforces. Um, you know, just, you know, not, not to be redundant, but imagine telling Boeing's or, you know, some of these, uh, some of these, uh, you know, various airlines uh, of immense, you know, uh, public, uh, you know, importance. Imagine telling them that they could only get their engineers out of, you know, Wisconsin, <laughs> right? Mm. Now that's yeah. not to say that Wisconsin probably doesn't have a great talent pool for engineers. I, I, I'm sure, and I know that they do. Um, but when you're doing anything, uh, you know, that level of importance, you want to scour the globe. And that's what folks like Boeing and IBM have been doing forever and ever. It's just now, um, not to delve into this too early, but now the, the pandemic showed Main Street that they could do it too. And not only could they do it, but they had to do it, right? To survive, to, to, to make the hires they needed. They had to, they had to frankly go satellite and they had to do it quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? And, you know, I, again, coming back to the point of IBM, like 30 years ago, it was near impossible to go global and it cost a fortune and the infrastructure is crazy. Whereas now, you know, with the pandemic, um, everyone was forced to do it in, a, in about a week. Everyone had to go global, but the technology was already there. It was easy. It's just that people's behaviors and routines weren't remote yet. And then the pandemic kind of forced everyone to change their their norms and, and habits, which is pretty powerful, huh? But again, it, it, you know, it's, it is so easy now. There is very little friction in uh, accessing a, glo- a global workforce. So it's, um, it's just so powerful. And what have you seen over since COVID? You know, we've had, what, two years now of this evolution. And obviously within that time as well, there's businesses have gone through hardship. Businesses have had to sort of readjust everything. How have you seen that that's impacted or reflected on offshoring? Yeah, it was, uh, well, it was especially heavy at first, right? When um, in March, when they declared the national lockdown in the Philippines, I was actually in a brand new center that we had just opened um, and invested quite a bit into right on AL Avenue, uh, specifically to service and get this and try not to laugh at me too much, but to you know, change the way that that the air the outsourcing for airlines and hotels and restaurants was conducted, um, wow. and with yeah, and we had I, I don't have the number in front of me, but we had north of ten SOWs lined up and prepared um, to launch that campus over the course of between the end of March until the middle of June, and of course everybody who's listening to this will be familiar with the portion of every contract called force majeure, right? Act of mm. God. Um, all of those <laughs> were activated, right? Because many of these clients, um, these prospective clients, uh, they, um, they didn't exist within a few months if they weren't subsidized by the government, right? Um, and so, you know, that was, you know, that had devastating impact at first. And as you know, in the Philippines, the airlines, 
Uh, there's some major BPO providers and offshoring providers here in the Philippines that service um, most, if not all, major airlines, globally speaking, right? And so that had a devastating impact in the front end of the pandemic. Um, but like all pandemics, and this isn't the first one that we've had to face, right? You know, you look back at H1N1, you look at H1N5, you can even look at the global economic housing crisis in 2009 that came out of the U.S. Even though that wasn't a pandemic, it, it really acted like one the way it spread over to Europe and so on, right? Um, we looked at that and we thought to ourselves, okay, you know, there's a winner and loser in every pandemic and who, what, which industries are going to be the winners and how do we make them our clients, right? So we took a real hard look at that and um, we were already significantly vested in the biopharma, healthcare, uh, health tech uh, space. So we doubled down on that. And, uh, and that led to some very significant growth for us as a company. I mean, we put up an excess of 200% growth a year and quite a bit more than that. Um, but, but it's, it's, it has changed more than just the landscape of who's outsourcing, right? The front end of the story is that, you know, airlines, travel and hospitality got punched in the nose and biopharma insurance got a big boost, but there's more to it than that. I think, um, I think a lot of businesses globally, especially across the West, uh, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in, in Canada, so on and so forth, they've realized that they can run highly successful teams outside of the office and down the street. And then they learned, well, not just down the street, we can actually recruit from Berrien 15 miles up the road. And then they said, well, wait a minute, not just Berrien, we can recruit from California and do pretty well. Wait a mm -hmm. minute, we can get that same talent actually out of Mumbai uh, right. And it did that. It kept escalating to the point where now we have this completely digitized uh, access to global talent pools. And it's, it, I think it's yeah. still settling in. It's, I think it's still settling in. I don't think everybody has completely grasped how powerful this is, but um, I think we're going to see some massive companies grow out of the ashes of this pandemic. Uh, they're, they're making noise, they're getting funding, and um, now they have a talent. Uh, acquisition solution that, as you mentioned, 35 years ago was only available to the IBMs of the world. Well, now it's available to the ABCs. And once they figure out how to do that, I think it's going to change the game. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, you know, what I find intriguing about the US, and obviously not all businesses are in the US and not everything happens around the US, but uh, it's a big economy. And the US, you know, as people went remote, they, I think, you know, there's a funny friction in the U.S. where the labor laws and uh, regulations are completely different if people step over the state line and there's 50 states and there's 50 ways of doing things. So as soon as you're out of California, for example, it's probably easier to employ someone in India than it is in the next door state. You know, like it's not <laughs> like there's a, well, not easier, but, you know, you might as well then look because you've got to figure out what to do when people put their foot over the state line so it's fascinating yeah. huh? you know and then people realize i think that with uh the outsourcing industry they facilitate all of that back-end stuff all of the the payroll and compliance and employment right. and all that which is which is a headache in any country in any state anyway uh and you also yeah. have the opportunity of accessing talent and and uh, saving money while you do it so it's pretty pretty powerful it is. Uh, you sound like so superstar thing. You sound like you deal with the major, major clients. You know, you've got pharmaceuticals, you've got airlines. Do you deal with staff augmentation and do you deal with the smaller, medium sized enterprises of the world? You know, we, um, 
we 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 do and we've we've recently made a pretty significant investment into it um we've actually opened up two incubator campuses uh one in makati and then one up in clark uh it's actually in angeles now but it's being transitioned over to clark um and that is specifically those campuses are specifically for companies that could be series a they could be series b series c so on and so forth who need access to specialized resources, but they don't yet have the scale to necessarily justify the economic impact um, that it would have on, the, on, on their company just yet. So what we've done is we've built these higher than average, uh, you know, kind of augmentative support team ratios to agent ratios. Um, it's very San Francisco, uh, uh, you know, uh, co-working space-esque where, you know, you'll be around, you know, if your agents are on the floor working, whether you have graphic designers or CSRs or finance analysts or whatever the case may be, um, you might be a startup A and startup B has, you know, a team just like that, you know, two desks down and startup C has that four desks down and they all have kind of smaller teams, but because we can put them together um, and kind of leverage uh, their shared resources uh, from a financial standpoint, we can then provide uh uh, you know, shared QA teams and IT teams and training teams to them. So they have this, they have the same access as if they had their own dedicated kind of offshore office. So we have invested quite a bit in that. Those are specifically for uh, companies that are going overseas with less than 15. Uh, so they're usually, and in fact, some of them are, you know, they, they come on with as little as two or three agents, I believe. Um, and we've had two pretty awesome success stories out of those offices since, um, since, January of 2021, three, one, two, three, yeah, three of those um, kind of startup teams that started with less than 10, three of them are in excess of 70 now. Um, so wow. some pretty, yeah, some pretty significant growth there. Now, um, as it happens to be, uh, you know, one of them is an e-commerce space and obviously that exploded during the pandemic. Another is in the, you know, pharma, biopharma uh, technology space. So obviously that exploded too. So they were, you know, well positioned, but nonetheless, we were able to be a part of that success story and, and we're happy we were able to do so. But yes, we, we are involved quite heavily um, recently in investing in, you know, Main Street's efforts to leverage offshore economics. And uh, yeah, more proud of that. And what is the typical journey of Main Street? I mean, you and I know it, but um, how, how do you or how do you perceive it in the US still? It's still seen as a little bit freaky and a little bit foreign, isn't it? So what is the process you kind of go through to to build um, awareness and comfort with people in the US Main Street and sure. to get them to kind of start an inch forward into offshoring? Yeah, I know there's, yeah, and, and you're 100% right. And that can vary state to state as well, right? So if you're in California or you're in New York, um, outsourcing is not a new concept to you, okay? It's, it's you know, you're in Silicon Valley or you're in you know, Lower East Side or whatever that you know all about it. Um, whereas if we're pitching clients or working with clients uh, and our solutions architects are trying to create a roadmap for them and they're sitting out of... Uh, uh, you know, Missoula, Montana or something, it is a somewhat foreign concept, right? And, and um, so the way that we try to approach it is by, is by pointing, pointing to the pandemic, right? Really just look at what the pandemic has shown us and look what it's shown you. Um, it's shown us that not only can you run a successful business out of the office, 
Um, but you can lower attrition dramatically when people don't have to drive an hour or two a day, when people can go straight to work, when people can find more of that work-life balance, when people can spend more time with their kids because they're not in traffic doing this, that, or the other, um, ancillary to work, but not work-related activities. Um, look what you can do with KPIs. I mean, this is not really an argument anymore that the data is in. People are more product can can be just as productive, if not more productive, um, in a satellite setting. Now, we mm-hmm. have a huge chunk of our workforce in the office. So I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but I'm just saying that they certainly don't need to be in your locality. Um, they can be at home in your locality or they can be abroad. Management is management, right? And if you have the right management infrastructure, we're going to get this done. And what more, if I can slash your costs, you can take that 20 to 40% you know, arbitrage that we create together by leveraging offshore economics and sticking that back into acquiring top line profits. What does that do for you? Right. And a lot of companies on Main Street did have problems um, kind of digesting that in the pre pandemic. Right. For a few different reasons. A, it just there wasn't really any live examples for them to see. Right. Um, And then the other is, you know, there there are political elements to it every four or five years in the U.S. Right. Um, There's a part where, 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 where some folks look at outsourcing as though it might be taking jobs at the local market. But what we know now is if you take um, these resources and you invest them overseas, then you can take that arbitrage and invest it locally and get even more growth than you would have gotten and even more local stimulus than you would have gotten if you would have kept those uh, positions uh, on, on shore in the first place. And so now that those examples are hard to debate, we're winning more of the, you know, we're winning more attention. We're, we're sitting down with more people. And I'm, I don't have the list in front of me. Um, I wish I could quote it, but I'm, I'm tempted to say that the seven, mo- seven or eight most recent agreements that we've signed this quarter, I don't think a single one of them generates more than, more than $20 million a year. And I, I think most of them far less than that. So Main Street is coming to the table. Um, mm. I think you just need to sit down an appeal to the success story most local to them so that they can see that, yes, you can branch out. You can manage teams from anywhere as long as we work together to create cultural affinity and manage the heck out of this. Um, yeah, we're having those good discussions and it's going well. And it's a difficult thing to propagate because it's it's quite invisible. You know, there could be 10 companies in a town that are offshore and it's not really spoken about. It's not really visible. Um, and I think it's only when you get, so it's hard to, it's hard for it to catch on. It's hard for it to go viral. I think eventually is there's kind of 30% of businesses that, that offshore, then it will hit this inflection point and then ev- everyone's going to start doing it because business owners and managers kind of network with each other. And as soon as it becomes a normalized part of conversation, it will just kind of take off. And, you know, I think we are technologically now at a point where it, it, it's just as easy, you know, previously that wasn't the case. And I think then socially and um, behaviorally, it's also going to reach that tipping point soon where, uh, you know, it, it's kind of semi-normal, then it becomes normal, then then everyone does it as a default. Like, it's just too compelling, isn't it, to to not? Definitely. It's, and it's, it's you know, it's not to use, you know, overly, overly recycled uh, California gold rush references, but 
it, it is to an extent turned into that, you know, if, I don't know what the exact number is off the top of my head, but if I recall, it was something like 11 to 12 million job openings in the U S in uh, December. Right. And there was something like 4.8 or 4.9 million people who were actually looking for jobs. And so there was a gap mm-hmm. <laughs> close to 8 million people. Um, there are 8 million jobs that frankly, nobody uh, could fill. It's not that they didn't want them necessarily, or that they weren't qualified. None of that was even a question. There was just more jobs than people. Right. And as that economy uh, grows and all of their kind of client economies grow and all their partner and alliance uh, uh, economies grow, um, the talent war isn't really being won. It's being transferred. It's being fought proxy, right? So what the, the U.S. is doing in large part is they're now outsourcing. And as I'm sure you've seen with a number of your guests on this show, um, the talent war in the Philippines has heated up considerably, right, since November. Uh you know, you, you have to come with real compensation packages. You have to have some good benefits. You have to have a comfortable working environment. Uh, you've got to present the opportunity for career advancement and development. Uh, these things have to be offered now uh, because, it you know, Silicon Valley did not win the, the battle war. They, they transferred it and are now fighting that same war in the streets of Makati, <laughs> in the streets of Clark, right? It's just been transferred to us. Um which is, which is great for everybody, right? Because now California can resume that aggressive growth out of that region. And now there's all these new exciting career opportunities for the local Filipino workforce and they're benefiting from it immensely. So it's a real win-win for everybody. And then again, as I referenced previously, that arbitrage goes back to the U.S. now and they can reinvest that on R&D and marketing and all those other good things that often are kept onshore. So... Um, so yeah, I, we're you know I think we're in the middle of that kind of kind of California gold rush moment um, where people are realizing how much is you know at the riverbed, and I think uh, you know uh, Filipinos specifically uh, the younger audience is really going to benefit from that. Yeah, I, I sort of wonder you know there's there's a red hot labor market in the Philippines at the moment and salaries are jumping up, and then I'm I just wondering if I'm too close to this market and maybe. You know, it's just as hot as the U.S. Like there is concern that if there's sort of extreme salary uh, appreciation, then it's going to be equal to the U.S. in a few years. But I, I think the U.S. and all the major economies, it's it's red hot everywhere, and salaries are just kind of soaring everywhere. So it's probably all staying kind of relative to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's exactly right. I th- I think that you, we are seeing some pretty uh, dramatic escalations among some of the. Uh, uh, what they call higher skilled positions. We, we certainly are seeing that. Um, I, I have a meeting with my town acquisition strategy team every Thursday. I just had it last night. And, uh, you know, that's a common topic for discussion. Um, but because they're raising, because the standards are raising in tandem, there is a balance, right? Um, so for example, you know, if a salary jumps up 25% Manila, but it's also shot up, 22 to 25% in San Francisco, you know, from a, from a percentage standpoint, you're still benefiting the same amount, right? It's just a newer cost of doing business and, and, and growing in the midst of uh, uh, this transition to kind of the new, the new, new normal. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's an undeniable that there, there definitely are some wage escalations um, if you're going for a particular type of hire, right? Definitely. Yeah, I find it interesting. Uh, it's interesting as well that, you know, 
20, 30 years ago, there was only the basic call center operator or agent. And now yeah. you're, you're going up the skill ladder as well. So you're paying more and more salaries, but you're paying for significantly more capable, more qualified, more skilled staff, aren't you? So, um, yeah. which, you know, wasn't in the Philippines kind of 20 years ago. And now it is. So it's it's kind of fascinating. And that even works right up through the hierarchy. You now have um, executive talent with 20, 30 years experience. And uh, those are obviously commanding pretty high salaries, but they, they're obviously that's well correct. worth it. That's correct. And that's, um, that's kind of what we've always hoped for too, right? Um, if you go back to the beginning of, of offshoring and outsourcing, that was kind of the hope uh, for a lot of the, the early pioneers was that um, if, if all these, you know, Fortune 500, Forbes, ranks com- Forbes ranked companies would outsource to the developing world, that it would then generate, um, it would then generate uh, local talent pools that were capable of doing that work on a global, on a global level, right? And, uh, you know, different schools of thought around it. Some people, uh, I read an article about how they hoped it reverse, would reverse uh, what was coined as the brain drain, right, of the 60s and 70s and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but however, whichever side of that argument you fall on, if you take a step back, there's no denying that, uh, the standard of living is growing considerably. Uh, you know, companies are now reaching out to, um, you know, global talent field to, to fill their executives and to fill their directors. Um, it's no longer just, uh, you know, the rank and file, uh, in this country and the top end in this country. Now it's. It's all of the above, right? You go wherever that talent is because you can. Um, and yeah, there are some wage escalations to it. Um, just to just to highlight that point, um, I believe it was uh, the middle of last year when we we got a pretty sizable uh, partnership inked uh, for a data scientist. And the minimum requirement is X amount of years of experience with at least uh, a master's degree in applied mathematics. But even that probably won't won't get you through because you probably need a PhD to survive it um, all the way through the interview process. And we have, you know, a whole account, tables and tables of these folks working together. And yeah, those guys are not, those guys and gals are, you know, they come at a premium, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But I can guarantee that it's still, you know, between 30 to 60% less than you're going to, you're going to pay trying to get that out of Brooklyn. Right. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, it's, there have been some escalations that's undeniable, um, but it's not just the bad escalations. It's also the good escalations, the escalation of the amount of time or, 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 you know, how fast we can staff a team, the, the, the amount of talent that's available has escalated the, 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 um, the level of talent that's available, it's all escalated in tandem. So I still think there's a really healthy balance and reason uh, to be here and to continue to explore uh, this global talent pool that we have in front of us. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And again, just have that, that executive talent helping build the teams and helping sort of navigate through the Philippines and offshore. And, you know, there is now kind of a lot of executive talent that's been working in this industry for 30 years, helping improve business processes. Even that itself has enormous value to client companies, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's very, it really very compelling. It, and it with, your, with your incubator then, how would you, how, can I ask, how is this price? How do you structure the price? Is it kind of a facility fee on top or is it an all-inclusive uh, salary price or is yeah. it kind of uh, dependent on the requirements. How do you structure these things? Yeah, we've moved a lot more, um, 
a lot more toward creating a menu of options. You know, in the past, I think what a lot of folks did is they, uh, you know, they, they took your job description and they fed it to their town acquisition department who spit out a salary and then you put your SG&A and margins on top, and that was a price kind of take it or leave it, maybe negotiable by quarter, right? That's kind of the uh, standard fare over the course of the last 15 to 20 years among the dedicated hourly model uh, BPOs that dominate the Philippine outsourcing landscape. Um, what we've kind of moved toward a little bit more is creating a menu of options for folks. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, you might want, you might not want somebody with 10 years of experience. You may not want that. You might want to start with a blank uh, slate. A lot of people mm -hmm. like that. Uh, you, or conversely, you might have a position where you want four or five or six years of experience, or you might want seniors. You might want folks who've been doing this for 15 years or more. So we now come back in our proposals and our uh, solution uh, uh, prospectus with options. So let's say you wanted to hire, um, role AZ. Okay. So AZ is a role that you wanted to hire. What we would do is say, okay, um, here's what a portfolio looks like, or sorry, here's what a profile looks like for, uh, an I, for a candidate that's going to want to earn this amount of money. That's going to want to, uh, uh, that's, that's going to have, you know, between one to three years of experience and they're going to have this kind of professional background. Uh, conversely speaking, uh, if you want somebody with five or more years of experience, here's what that profile looked like looks like and here's what that billing uh, uh, amount would be and then if you want somebody that's a little bit more advanced maybe they have international experience maybe they were educated overseas or maybe they've been in you know been in the business for 10 15 years here's what that pricing would look like because it's not really one size fits all anymore right people really really in the beginning were like okay we need to offshore and so offshoring was just offshoring but now there's different levels to it there's there there's different uh business units and different range of companies that need to be able to offshore and they all have different needs. So we try to present kind of a menu option. With that said, we, we do follow the hourly rate model that's full-time dedicated and exclusive, meaning employees work for 40 hours a week, you know, four weeks a month. And at the end of the month, we just bill you for whatever the hourly rate is. The hourly rate is generally all inclusive, right? Everything from life insurance and health insurance, uh, salary, employee engagement, you know, multiple service redundancies and all that gets wrapped up into a flat hourly fee. So that's the way we typically uh, build out our packages, but we still do it in a way now where uh, clients can come in and take a look at a menu of skills, a menu of uh, pricing options. That way they can figure out what's best, uh, what's best for their bottom line and how to find the balance between what they, what they, uh, what they, what they need to do and what they, what they want to do. And they can find the balance there. Got it. And again, there's just so much value in having a conversation, isn't there? Because all of this has to be bespoke. Every business is different and every staffing requirement is different. So it's not easy to just have a, a, a simple menu, is it? It's, you've got to have a high level discussion and really sort of dig into the business. And, and it's amazing, again, that people can sort of tap into you guys and have a conversation and, and kind of get uh, suggested solutions. It's, it's super powerful. Yeah, it's, it's, it has been powerful and it has been, uh, it's been really interesting as well. I had a conversation with the <clears throat> prospective uh, client not too long ago and, and uh, they said, uh, well, we spoke to another service provider who said they could <clears throat> provide X for XYZ. And I said, well, listen, overseas, uh, whether it's the Philippines or Colombia or South Africa or, or India, it doesn't matter. You can get 
you can really get any position filled for any price you want. It, that's not <clears throat> that's not in question. That's a you know that's close to a fact. You can do that. Mm. Uh, the question is, what's the attrition going to be like? Right? What's the happiness going to be like? What's the business continuity measure is going to be like? Um, you know, does that pricing reflect not just your current needs, but does it reflect your growth agenda? And if the answer is no, is it really worth that 15, 25 cent, $1 difference or whatever it is <clears throat> that you're looking at from a perspective of economies of scale? Is it worth that? And the answer is generally no. So you're right. It does require a real high level discussion. You can't just slap down a menu and say, what do you want? Like it's uh, like it's McDonald's. Um, a really good outsourcing discussion, at least for us, I can't speak for everybody, but for us, it should take between eight to 12 weeks at the minimum. Um, when you're talking about scaling up a large effort, it, it, you know, some blood, sweat and tears has to go into that to make that work mm-hmm. properly. Um, our training teams need to be very closely aligned with yours. Our quality assurance teams, our IT teams, even our executive teams, they've all got to We've got to get in there and do the dirty work um, to make this happen properly. And uh, but if you do, if you do, and you're willing to invest that, it's not just about money, right? You got to invest the time and resources, to, uh, human resources too. But if you're willing to do that, um, you can discover, uh, you know, that the same type of thing that you know, IBM and Boeing's, and you know, to throw back to an earlier piece of our conversation that they have known for decades. You can have that realization for your smaller business too, and that's powerful. Super, super. You know, and it's difficult when people want a simple answer and just sometimes there isn't. Is there like we get, you know, I get questions like how much does a salesperson cost? And, you know, to put it to put it back at them, in the US you can hire a salesperson for twenty grand a year or two million dollars a year, you know. It's Correct. um it's 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 just not clear, is it? You know, and, and it takes no. a very detailed discussion and you know, what exactly is a salesperson and what is the process? Is it a new process? Do they need to build the process? It's uh, pretty complex. So a phone call is a, is a great idea. But um, Matthew, thank you so much. Really, really fascinating, enlightening conversation. And um, it's great to hear you did so well in, in throughout the COVID period. If anyone wants to, again, I encourage everyone to, to kind of have a call, like pick up the phone because just the value exchange is so significant. Um, but if anyone wants to know more about um, Superstaff or uh, get in touch, how can they do that? Sure. I mean, I would just, you know, you can visit our website, superstaff.com, um, or you can, you know, send an email over to info at superstaff.com or, um, you know, just give us a call. Um, you know, numbers on the website. It's, uh, you know, don't know it off the top of my head, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, you I've know, got it here, there. actually. It's one eight four four nine two super. But uh, yeah, but that's obviously is. all on the website, and we'll put that and also all of the uh, links in the show notes as well. Yeah, well, we we definitely appreciate uh, your time. Thank you for uh, you know bringing me on here. I, I really appreciate this lively uh, dialogue and exchange, and and uh, you know to all small, medium sized businesses out there, uh, you know, looking for uh, uh, the next advantage. Uh, this is it. And we're here and, you know, we're, we're ready to help if, if you decide that's best for your business. And in any event, thank you so much for your for time, everybody. And, and Derek, thank you very much as well. That was Matthew Narciso. He is the Managing Director of Superstaff. As always, if you want to reach out to them or get any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash 
podcast. And as always, if you want to email us, just send us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.